kinfolk. Happy Sunday. And brothers and sisters, let us pray. Gracious and powerful God, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts and minds will be pleasing and acceptable unto thee, our guide and our destination. Amen. There's really a wild diversity of ways to interpret the little uh, interaction between Jesus and Judas Iscariot in today's reading. I'll start with what I think is the worst interpretation, unfortunately the one that I hear the most, that Jesus' rebuke to Iscariot, that you always have the poor with you, but you'll not always have me, that this is somehow God endorsing the idea that there will always be poor people, um, that poor people are somehow part of the design. I think I most recently heard some Congress critter quote it this way. It said something like, well, biblically speaking, Jesus said that the poor are always going to be there in some form or fashion. This is backward, <clears throat> incredibly backward. It almost a complete inversion of what the Greek really says. Uh, and it's one is, this isn't even one that's that hard to get right because Jesus is literally just quoting another part of the Bible as he often does. He's quoting from Deuteronomy, the verses, since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. It's a commandment, it's not an excuse. It needs to be understood in context. The entire preamble to this verse in Deuteronomy are the instructions from God on how we are to behave, read as follows. It starts with this. There will, however, be no one in need among you because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a possession to occupy. If only you will obey the Lord your God by diligently observing this entire commandment that I command you today, and then the commandment, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. And so in John, Jesus has already answered the question, who is my neighbor? So again, what we've got here is a kind of dichotomy. Uh, between It's set up between the way God expects the world to operate and the way that the world under our control actually operates. God's uh, shalom, God's vision of peace, is a world where there will be none in need. Because the people follow God's commandments. And as soon as someone is in need, God's people must open their hands and provide. The Baptist writer uh, Fred Clark says that Moses is delivering a not-so-subtle slap in the face to the followers of God. If you were actually following my commandments, then there would be no one in need amongst you. So obviously... You're getting it wrong. Um, and another way that people preach on this passage is to really focus on the nard. Uh, nard. Marvelous nard. Who doesn't go down to Walgreens and purchase for their beloved a bottle of nard? Uh, <laughs> nard is also known by its much more um, poetic and appealing name, which is musk root. Nard is a, it's an ancient kind of oil 
that was used to prepare bodies for burial. And it has a very powerful aroma for obvious reasons. Jesus alludes to this. And then the passage is shared to demonstrate, which I think is perfectly accurate, that once again, the women, the female disciples around Jesus, understand and believe in what is to come, while the men are just too slow to catch on, which is always the case in John. So Mary's extravagant use of this very valuable oil demonstrates that she is fully cognizant of what is about to occur in Jerusalem, though it breaks her heart. Well, it's a harbinger of the passion. But I want to also share with you today my personal favorite interpretation of this text, uh, which I first discovered in a, uh, in a transcribed Bible study. Um, it was a Bible study that was recorded taking place amongst a group of Guatemalan farmers, very, very impoverished people, farmers in Guatemala that were studying this same verse that we just heard today uh, and published in this wonderful book that's called Voices from the Margin, Interpreting the Bible in the Third World. So these are essays that have Bible studies done by people who live in, in very poor places on our, on our, our planet. Okay, the, these Guatemalan farmers are puzzling over this verse, the poor you'll always have with you. And rather than what I would suspect, as poor people, they might read themselves into his rebuke to Iscariot, but um, rather when they read it, they reach the stunning conclusion that echoes the verse I just shared from Deuteronomy. Namely this, if we are going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, and if we want to be with the resurrected, resurrected Jesus, we must make sure that the poor uh, are among us and that we must make sure that we are with the poor. Otherwise, we're missing the point. <clears throat> For as long as there are poor people, Christians must go to them, abide with them, minister alongside them and allow ourselves to be ministered to by them. The first time that I ever heard the phrase downward mobility, these words uh, were spoken by the Jesuit priest and protester and rabble rouser, Father John Deere at a rally. Yes, John Deere, like the tractor company, no relation. Father uh, John Deere spoke these words. I think it might have been at the School of the Americas down in Fort Benning, Georgia, or it was maybe out west somewhere. He was encouraging all of us young people out there who were preparing to get arrested by military police uh, to practice downward mobility. He said that if we wanted to find Jesus, we needed downward mobility. And when I heard this, I really liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, I was listening to him at the bitter tail end of a very, very hard time in my early adult life. This is right at the stunning collapse of a hard run at upward mobility. And I climbed up pretty high on that ladder before my hand missed the next rung. I felt a long way. I had a very hard time. 
I'd lost just about everything I had, including my career, my spouse, my home. I'd lost my father to an early death. And I had also lost all interest in becoming wealthy. Now, I'd left college as an undergraduate wanting to uh, make some good money. And so now, uh, after that had failed, I really liked the feel of these words from this radical priest, downward mobility. I, feel, I felt like I was being given permission by Father John <clears throat> to restart my life. That was good for me. But I also want to be careful here. Because, especially in progressive churches like our own, we sometimes tend to glorify poverty a bit. We see in the very poor, I think accurately, a reflection of the life of Jesus Christ. And so then we tend to put poverty up on a pedestal. I want to distinguish with clarity the difference here between what I just spoke of, downward mobility, and what I call forced downward trajectory. The well-being of American workers in this country is on a forced downward trajectory. Now, we just saw a pretty stunning victory uh, amongst some Amazon workers, and we'll see where that goes. But for almost three generations now, we've had no real labor movement. That creates a forced downward trajectory. The plight of the underhoused homeless in our cities is on a forced downward trajectory. And the life expectancy of Americans is declining for the first time since the First World War. These aren't choices being made by these people. Downward mobility, my downward mobility, is a choice. It's a reorientation of my values. It does involve some agency. It's something that we consent to. But there's no glory or beauty in forced poverty. <clears throat> and remember, always remember that we live in a world filled with abundance. We've spoken of this in the past. Three, our, our, the current global farming output is 3,000 calories per human per day. We have half again as much food as we need to feed every single human on this planet. The combined wealth production of all classes of people in the United States of America, if it was averaged per family, would be over $750,000 per family per year. So the poverty that exists in, in America and the starvation that exists around the world is not God's fault. God made us stewards of a world that produces far more than we need, but rather is a product of human sin choices made by powerful people. It's a societal choice. It's still a choice. Now, there is no natural reason, no natural reason for people to be dying of malnutrition or homelessness. This is simply the way that human beings have chosen to set things up. I saw something once that really bothered me. I'm going to share this story with you. It's for a constellation of reasons, all of which are preventable. We now have refugee camps here in West Michigan that are popping up around our cities and townships. Um, this is uh, and was and continues to be especially bad in Kalamazoo County. 
uh, uh, Kalamazoo, a city that is, despite being roughly less than a quarter of the size of Grand Rapids, has the same number of homeless people living on its streets. Um, hidden from view, there was at one tent city with about 120 people living in it that was set up near an old chemical dump, of which there are many around Kalamazoo County. And I was out there helping out the best that I could. <clears throat> Folks were doing their best to get people rehoused. At one point, the people who lived there asked if we could somehow get a dumpster to haul away s some of the trash that tends to accumulate. So this is, we churches worked together, we partnered with the local company, we got a couple of dumpsters and started hauling away a lot of the trash. But I was really nervous. I was nervous because something I thought that might happen did start to happen. Uh, when the first dumpster came, after about an hour of putting trash into it, I saw a pickup truck come around the corner from my eye and then a guy jumped out and um, he started tossing trash from the back of his pickup truck into the dumpster. And I ran up to him and I said, listen, this isn't a public dumping spot. Um, <clears throat> it's private for these people. And he apologized. I was like, it's okay. But as he drove off, I was worried. And within about two weeks, the trucks began coming at nighttime, dumping just hundreds of garbage bags at the spot, overflowing the dumpster, really. Now, me and another fella who were working on this project, he was a priest. But we were brainstorming about how to deal with this. And I was like, ah, you know, if we get a bigger dumpster, they're just going to come from further away to fill it up. And he said, no, we got to be more proactive than that. This priest, he was an elderly man, and his idea was to set up some secret cameras and, and see if we could get the city to find the illegal dumps, dump, dumpers to pay for it. And I was like, wow, you're kind of like Father Batman, you know? You could, uh, we, we figured it'd be easy to, maybe he, he said we should pick through the trash and find mailing labels and then send these people a bill for the dumpsters. Um, in all of this, though, there was something that we didn't want to talk about. It was an unaddressed pain that we shared, which was that people from the community were dumping their garbage onto the refugee camp. They were taking the garbage from their homes and just dumping it on these people. We didn't want to talk about that. Before we could implement any of our Father Batman and Robin schemes, the city had gone shut the whole thing down. Police had run people off and brought in bulldozers, hauled off all the trash. Local news people were there. They were interviewing the police. Police said, well, the health department says this place has got to shut down. Turns out that the health department hadn't said anything of the sort. Police said, well, you can't have just a pile of garbage like this. And one of the guys from the camp, he interrupted the police officer in the interview, and he said, this isn't our garbage. People from all around town have been coming out and dumping trash here where we live. Police officer said, no, no, of course, there's no illegal dumping going on here. It's just trash belongs to these homeless people. Well, then just, of course, as always happens, instead of solving the problem, several new refugee camps sprung up all over town, elsewhere in the city. You can't end homelessness by making it illegal. For some reason, for some reason, punishing poor people for being poor doesn't suddenly cause them to stop being poor. But this question then is, who are these people? in these camps, and who is with them? Who's with them? That's the Christian question. 
driving, walking, or biking over to these refugee camps to get to know them. Just to get to know them. It's a, it's a very important kind of downward mobility. Choosing not to ignore, to see them, rather. To see them. Um, when we remain with them, and we learn from them, and we work to live with them and share their load, and allow them to share our load and minister to us and help save us, we're also protecting ourselves from a very long fall by remaining closer to the ground, I think, to the ground of our being, perhaps. As Jesus is speaking to the disciples, he's showing approval to Mary as she prepares his earthly body for the grave. He's making us a promise. It's a promise for after all that is to come. He says, you will have me. He promises, you will have me so long as you are with the poor. Now, it's up to you, perhaps, to define what poor means in your own setting. I'll tell you, frankly, and without hesitation, that some of the most impoverished people I've ever met lived in gated communities and sleep in king-size beds at night. Poverty comes in a lot of different forms. Most obviously, of course, we have the cruelty of this rigged economy in America that forces some people into economic poverty, but there's also educational poverty. There's a poverty of spirit, poverty of creativity. And then there's the poverty that comes with addiction and despair and the often hidden poverties of abuse and the poverty of any child who hungers for the love of a caregiver. The poverty of a heart left empty by the loss of loved ones. That's where we go, Christians. That's where we go to find Jesus and to dwell with him. We go to the place of poverty and then through this practiced downward mobility toward that pain, we will experience compassion. We will experience their passion. That's what compassion means, with passion. Passion in the traditional sense, the self-same passion that we together are about to walk through during Holy Week. Compassion is the way. Compassion is the way to the presence of Jesus Christ. As we prepare our hearts to reside with him in his hour of deepest pain, let's this week hold fast to our practices of compassion, those in poverty, because compassion will carry us to the very heart of God. Compassion is the gift of grace.